Section 1 of Appreciations with an Essay on Style. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations by Walter Pater. Section 1. Style. Part 1. Since all progress of mind consists for the most part in differentiation, in the resolution of an obscure and complex object into its component aspects, it is surely the stupidest of losses to confuse things which right reason has put asunder, to lose the sense of achieved distinctions, the distinction between poetry and prose, for instance, or to speak more exactly, between the laws and characteristic excellences of verse and prose composition. On the other hand, those who have dwelt most emphatically on the distinction between prose and verse, prose and poetry, may sometimes have been tempted to limit the proper functions of prose too narrowly. And this again is at least false economy, as being, in effect, the renunciation of a certain means or faculty, in a world where, after all, we must needs make the most of things. Critical efforts to limit art a priori, by anticipations regarding the natural incapacity of the material with which this or that artist works, as the sculptor with solid form, or the prose writer with the ordinary language of man, are always liable to be discredited by the facts of artistic production. And while prose is actually found to be a coloured thing with Bacon, picturesque with Livy and Carlyle, musical with Cicero and Newman, mystical and intimate with Plato and Michelet and Sir Thomas Brown, exalted or florid, it may be, with Milton and Taylor, it will be useless to protest that it can be nothing at all, except something very tamely and narrowly confined to mainly practical ends, a kind of, quote, good round hand, unquote. As useless as the protest that poetry might not touch prosaic subjects as with Wordsworth, or an abstruse matter as with Browning, or treat contemporary life nobly as with Tennyson. In subordination to one essential beauty in all good literary style, in all literature as a fine art, as there are many beauties of poetry, so the beauties of prose are many, and it is the business of criticism to estimate them as such, as it is good in the criticism of verse to look for those hard, logical, and quasi-prosaic excellences which that too has, or needs. To find in the poem, amid the flowers, the allusions, the mixed perspectives, of Lycidas, for instance, the thought, the logical structure, how wholesome, how delightful, as to identify in prose what we call the poetry, the imaginative power, not treating it as out of place and a kind of vagrant intruder, but by way of an estimate of its rights, that is, of its achieved powers there. Dryden, with the characteristic instinct of his age, loved to emphasize the distinction between poetry and prose, the protest against their confusion with each other coming with somewhat diminished effect from one whose poetry was so prosaic. In truth, his sense of prosaic excellence affected his verse rather than his prose, which is not only fervid, richly figured, poetic, as we say, but vitiated, all unconsciously, by many a scanning line. Setting up correctness, that humble merit of prose, as the central literary excellence, he is really a less correct writer than he may seem, still with an imperfect mastery of the relative pronoun. It might have been foreseen that, in the rotations of mind, the province of poetry and prose would find its asserter, and, 
a century after dryden amid very different intellectual needs and with the need therefore of great modifications in literary form the range of the poetic force in literature was effectively enlarged by wordsworth the true distinction between prose and poetry he regarded as the almost technical or accidental one of the absence or presence of metrical beauty or say metrical restraint and for him the opposition came to be between verse and prose of course but as the essential dichotomy in this matter between imaginative and unimaginative writing parallel to de quincey's distinction between quote, the literature of power and the literature of knowledge unquote, in the former of which the composer gives us not fact but his peculiar sense of fact whether past or present dismissing then under sanction of wordsworth that harsher opposition of poetry to prose as savouring in fact of the arbitrary psychology of the last century and with it the prejudice that there can be but one only beauty of prose style i propose here to point out certain qualities of all literature as a fine art which if they apply to the literature of fact apply still more to the literature of the imaginative sense of fact while they apply indifferently to verse and prose so far as either is really imaginative certain conditions of true art in both alike which conditions may also contain in them the secret of the proper discrimination and guardianship of the peculiar excellences of either the line between fact and something quite different from external fact is indeed hard to draw in pascal for instance in the persuasive writers generally how difficult to define the point where from time to time argument which if it is to be worth anything at all must consist of facts or groups of facts becomes a pleading a theorem no longer but essentially an appeal to the reader to catch the writer's spirit to think with him if one can or will an expression no longer of fact but of his sense of it his peculiar intuition of a world prospective or discerned below the faulty conditions of the present in either case changed somewhat from the actual world in science on the other hand in history so far as it conforms to scientific rule we have a literary domain where the imagination may be thought to be always an intruder and as in all science the functions of literature reduce themselves eventually to the transcribing of fact so all the excellences of literary form in regard to science are reducible to various kinds of painstaking this good quality being involved in all quote, skilled work unquote, whatever in the drafting of an act of parliament as in shewing yet here again the writer's sense of fact in history especially and in all those complex subjects which do but lie on the borders of science will still take the place of fact in various degrees your historian for instance with absolutely truthful intention amid the multitude of facts presented to him must needs select and in selecting assert something of his own humour something that comes not of the world without but of a vision within so gibbon moulds his unwieldy material to a preconceived view livy tacitus michelet moving full of poignant sensibility amid the records of the past each after his own sense modifies who can tell where and to what degree 
and becomes something else than a transcriber, each, as he thus modifies, passing into the domain of art proper. For just in proportion as the writer's aim, consciously or unconsciously, comes to be the transcribing not of the world, not of mere fact, but of his sense of it, he becomes an artist, his work fine art, and good art, as I hope ultimately to show, in proportion to the truth of his presentment of that sense. As in those humbler or plainer functions of literature also, truth, truth to bare fact, here, is the essence of such artistic quality as they may have. Truth, there can be no merit, no craft at all, without that. And further, all beauty is in the long run only fineness of truth, or what we call expression, the finer accommodation of speech to that vision within. The transcript of his sense of fact rather than the fact, as being preferable, pleasanter, more beautiful to the writer himself. In literature, as in every other project of human skill, in the moulding of a bell or a platter, for instance, wherever this sense asserts itself, wherever the producer so modifies his work as, over and above its primary use or intention, to make it pleasing, to himself, of course, in the first instance, there, quote, fine, unquote, as opposed to merely serviceable art, exists. Literary art, that is, like all art which is in any way imitative or reproductive of fact, form, or color, or incident, is the representation of such fact as connected with soul, of a specific personality in its preferences, its volition, and power. Such is the matter of imaginative or artistic literature, this transcript not of mere fact, but of fact in its infinite variety, as modified by human preferences in all its infinitely varied forms. It will be good literary art, not because it is brilliant or sober, or rich or impulsive or severe, but just in proportion as its representation of that sense, that sole fact, is true, verse being only one department of such literature, and imaginative prose, it may be thought, being the special art of the modern world. That imaginative prose should be the special and opportune art of the modern world results from two important facts about the latter. First, the chaotic variety and complexity of its interests, making the intellectual issue, the really master currents of the present time, incalculable, a condition of mind little susceptible of the restraint proper to verse form, so that the most characteristic verse of the nineteenth century has been lawless verse, and, secondly, an all-pervading naturalism, a curiosity about everything whatever as it really is, involving a certain humility of attitude, cognate to what must, after all, be the less ambitious form of literature. And prose thus asserting itself as the special and privileged artistic faculty of the present day will be, however critics may try to narrow its scope, as varied in its excellence as humanity itself reflecting on the facts of its last experience, an instrument of many stops, meditative, observant, descriptive, eloquent, analytic, plaintive, fervid. Its beauties will be not exclusively, quote, pedestrian, unquote. It will exert, in due measure, all the varied charms of poetry, down to the rhythms which, as in Cicero or Michelet, or Newman at their best, 
gives its musical value to every syllable. The literary artist is of necessity a scholar, and in what he proposes to do will have in mind, first of all, the scholar and the scholarly conscience, the male conscience in this matter, as we must think it, under a system of education which still to so large an extent limits real scholarship to men. In his self-criticism, he supposes always that sort of reader who will go full of eyes, warily, considerately, though without consideration for him, over the ground which the female conscience traverses so lightly, so amiably. For the material in which he works is no more a creation of his own than the sculptor's marble, project of a myriad various minds and contending tongues, compact of obscure and minute association, a language has its own abundant and often recondite laws, in the habitual and summary recognition of which scholarship consists. A writer, full of a matter he is before all things anxious to express, may think of those laws, the limitations of vocabulary, structure and the like, as a restriction, but if a real artist will find in them an opportunity. His punctilious observance of the properties of his medium will diffuse through all he writes a general air of sensibility, of refined usage. Exclusiones debitae, the exclusions or rejections which nature demands, we know how large a part these play, according to Bacon, in the science of nature. In a somewhat changed sense, we might say that the art of the scholar is summed up in the observance of those rejections demanded by the nature of his medium, the material he must use. Alive to the value of an atmosphere in which every term finds its utmost degree of expression, and with all the jealousy of a lover of words, he will resist a constant tendency on the part of the majority of those who use them to efface the distinctions of language, the facility of writers often reinforcing in this respect the work of the vulgar. He will feel the obligation not of the laws only, but of those affinities, avoidances, those mere preferences of his language, which through the associations of literary history have become a part of his nature, prescribing the rejection of many a neology, many a license, many a gypsy phrase which might present itself as actually expressive. His appeal, again, is to the scholar, who has great experience in literature, and will show no favour to shortcuts, or hackneyed illustration, or an affectation of learning designed for the unlearned. Hence a contention, a sense of self-restraint and renunciation, having for the susceptible reader the effect of a challenge for minute consideration, the attention of the writer in every minutest detail being a pledge that it is worth the reader's while to be attentive to, that a writer is dealing scrupulously with his instrument, and therefore, indirectly, with the reader himself also, that he has the science of the instrument he plays on, perhaps, after all, with the freedom which in such case will be the freedom of a master. For meanwhile, braced only by those restraint, he is really vindicating his liberty in the making of a vocabulary, an entire system of composition for himself, his own true manner. And when we speak of the manner of a true master, we mean what is essential in his art. Pedantry being only the scholarship of Le Cuistre, we have no English equivalent, he is no pedant, and does but show his intelligence of the rules of language in his freedoms with it, addition or expansion. 
which like the spontaneities of manner in a well-bred person will still further illustrate good taste the right vocabulary translators have not invariably seen how all-important that is in the work of translation driving for the most part at idiom or construction whereas if the original be first-rate one's first care should be with its elementary particles plato for instance being often reproducible by an exact following with no variation in structure of word after word as a pencil follows a drawing under tracing paper so only each word or syllable be not of false color to change my illustration a little well that is because any writer worth translating at all as winnowed and searched through his vocabulary is conscious of the words he would select in systematic reading of a dictionary and still more of the words he would reject were the dictionary other than johnson's and doing this with his peculiar sense of the world ever in view in search of an instrument for the adequate expression of that he begets a vocabulary faithful to the colouring of his own spirit and in the strictest sense original that living authority which language needs lies in truth in its scholars who recognizing always that every language possesses a genius a very fastidious genius of its own expand at once and purify its very elements which must needs change along with the changing thoughts of living people ninety years ago for instance a great mental force certainly was needed by wordsworth to break through the consecrated poetic associations of a century and speak the language that was his that was to become in a measure the language of the next generation but he did it with the tact of a scholar also english for a quarter of a century past has been assimilating the phraseology of pictorial art for half a century the phraseology of the great german metaphysical movement of eighty years ago in part also the language of mystical theology and none but pedants will regret a great consequent increase of its resources for many years to come its enterprise may well lie in the naturalization of the vocabulary of science so only it be under the eye of a sensitive scholarship in a liberal naturalization of the ideas of science too for after all the chief stimulus of good style is to possess a full rich complex matter to grapple with the literary artist therefore will be well aware of physical science science also attaining in its turn its true literary ideal and then as the scholar is nothing without a historic sense he will be apt to restore not really obsolete or really worn out words but the finer edge of words still in use a certain communicate discover words like these it has been part of our quote, business unquote, to misuse and still as language was made for man he will be no authority for correctnesses which limiting freedom of utterance were yet but accidents in their origin as if one vowed not to say quote, its unquote, which ought to have been in shakespeare quote his unquote, quote hers unquote, for inanimate objects being but a barbarous and really inexpressive survival yet we have known many things like this raisy saxon monosyllables close to us as touch and sight he will intermix readily with those long savoursome latin words rich in quote, second intention unquote. in this late day certainly 
no critical process can be conducted reasonably without eclecticism of such eclecticism we have a justifying example in one of the first poets of our time how illustrative of monosyllabic effect of sonorous latin of the phraseology of science of metaphysic of colloquialism even are the writings of tennyson yet was what a fine fastidious scholarship throughout a scholar writing for the scholarly he will of course leave something to the willing intelligence of his reader quote, to go preach to the first passer-by says montaigne quote, to become tutor to the ignorance of the first i meet is a thing i abhor unquote. a thing in fact naturally distressing to the scholar who will therefore ever be shy of offering uncomplimentary assistance to the reader's wit to really strenuous minds there is a pleasurable stimulus in the challenge for a continuous effort on their part to be rewarded by securer and more intimate grasp of the author's sense self-restraint a skilful economy of means ascesis that too has a beauty of its own and for the reader supposed there will be an aesthetic satisfaction in that frugal closeness of style which makes the most of a word in the exaction from every sentence of a precise relief in the just spacing out of word to thought in the logically filled space connected always with the delightful sense of difficulty overcome different classes of persons at different times make of course very various demands upon literature still scholars i suppose and not only scholars but all disinterested lovers of books will always look to it as to all other fine art for a refuge a sort of cloistral refuge from a certain vulgarity in the actual world a perfect poem like lycidas a perfect fiction like esmond the perfect handling of a theory like newman's idea of a university has for them something of the uses of a religious quote, retreat unquote. here then with a view to the central need of a select few those quote, men of a finer thread unquote, who have formed and maintained the literary ideal everything every component element will have undergone exact trial and above all there will be no uncharacteristic or tarnished or vulgar decoration permissible ornament being for the most part structural or necessary as the painter in his picture so the artist in his book aims at the projection by honourable artifice of a peculiar atmosphere quote, the artist unquote, says Schiller, quote, may be known rather by what he omits, unquote. and in literature too the true artist may be best recognized by his tact of omission, for to the grave reader words too are grave, and the ornamental word, the figure, the accessory form or color or reference, is rarely content to die to thought precisely at the right moment, but will inevitably linger a while stirring a long quote, brainwave unquote, behind it of perhaps quite alien associations just there it may be is the detrimental tendency of the sort of scholarly attentiveness of mind i am recommending but the true artist allows for it he will remember that as the very word ornament indicates what is in itself non-essential so the quote, one beauty unquote, of all literary style is of its very essence and independent in prose and verse alike of all removable decoration that it may exist in its fullest lustre 
as in Flaubert's Madame Bovary, for instance, or in Stendhal's Le Rouge et le Noir, in a composition utterly unadorned, with hardly a single suggestion of visibly beautiful things. Parallel, illusion, the elusive way generally, the flowers in the garden, he knows the narcotic force of these upon the negligent intelligence to which any diversion, literally, is welcome, any vagrant intruder, because one can go wandering away with it from the immediate subject, jealous, if he have a really quickening motive within, of all that does not hold directly to that, of the facile, the osseuse, he will never depart from the strictly pedestrian process, unless he gains a ponderable something thereby. Even assured of its congruity, he will still question its serviceableness. Is it worthwhile, can we afford, to attend to just that, to just that figure or literary reference, just then? Surplusage, he will drap that, as a runner on his muscles. For in truth, all art does but consist in the removal of surplusage. From the last finish of the gem engraver blowing away the last particle of invisible dust, back to the earliest divination of the finished work to be, lying somewhere, according to Michelangelo's fancy, in the rough-hewn block of stone. And what applies to figure or flower must be understood of all other accidental or removable ornaments of writing whatever, and not of specific ornament only, but of all that latent color and imagery which language as such carries in it. A lover of words for their own sake, to whom nothing about them is unimportant, a minute and constant observer of their physiognomy, he will be on the alert not only for obviously mixed metaphors, of course, but for the metaphor that is mixed in all our speech, though a rapid use may involve no cognition of it. Currently recognizing the incident, the color, the physical elements or particles in words like absorb, consider, extract, to take the first that occur, he will avail himself of them as further adding to the resources of expression. The elementary particles of language will be realized as color and light and shade through his scholarly living in the full sense of them. Still opposing the constant degradation of language by those who use it carelessly, he will not treat colored glass as if it were clear, and while half the world is using figure unconsciously, will be fully aware not only of all that latent figurative texture and speech, but of the vague, lazy, half-formed personification, a rhetoric depressing and worse than nothing, because it has no really rhetorical motive, which plays so large a part there, and, as in the case of more ostentatious ornament, scrupulously exact of it, from syllable to syllable, its precise value. So far I have been speaking of certain conditions of the literary art arising out of the medium or material in or upon which it works, the essential qualities of language and its aptitudes for contingent ornamentation, matters which define scholarship as science and good taste, respectively. They are both subservient to a more intimate quality of good style, more intimate as coming nearer to the artist himself. The Oshos, the facile, surplusage, why are these abhorrent to the true literary artist, except because, in literary as in all other art, structure is all important, felt or painfully missed, everywhere. That architectural conception of work, which foresees the end in the beginning and never loses sight of it, 
and in every part is conscious of all the rest till the last sentence does but with undiminished vigour unfold and justify the first a condition of literary art which in contradistinction to another quality of the artist himself to be spoken of later i shall call the necessity of mind in style End of section 1